0: Welcome to another episode of Exploring Art Podcast, a Florida International University student podcast for the creative curious. I'm your host, Christina, and I'm delighted to have Bailey and Jeremy with me on the panel. Welcome to Exploring Art. Hi, what's up? I'm Bailey. And I'm Jeremy. Great, great. All right. So essentially, today we'll be discussing two very prominent people in the art world, I guess you could say. We'll be discussing Paul Cezanne and Ambroise Villard. Um... And Boise Villard in his memoirs, he tells of putting a Cézanne painting of female nudes in an old frame for an exhibit, but he forgets to remove the title of the former canvas, Diana and Aston. So the press described the work as Diana bathing and praised the picture of the goddess being surrounded by her virgins. And shortly thereafter, Villard agreed to, lo- to loan Cézanne's temptation of St. Anthony to another exhibition, but, you know, of course, to his horror, he discovered that he had already sold the St. Anthony, so he sent the Diana and Aston one instead. And even though the title Temptation of St. Anthony had already been entered into the catalogue, the Goddess of Satan. So, did the press really make a mistake, or did Villard? Are the titles a help or a hindrance in interpreting art? So... Essentially, Velard told the story to Suzanne, who was quite indifferent, saying that he had no particular subject in mind at all, and was just trying to render certain kinds of movements. So was he right in his concern?
1: Let's talk more about that. So what do you guys know about Ambrose Villard, Bailey? Um, well, I've been researching him and just a little bit about him before we dive into, like, the details. Mm-hmm. He was a French art dealer, um, born on July 3rd in 1866, and he was raised on the island of Reunion. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Mm -hmm, It's a remote French colony in the Indian Ocean. And um, at the age of 19, he actually went to Montpellier in southern France to study law, which was a little bit interesting considering that he switched his career to art. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... At the age of 21, he went to Paris to continue his studies. Right, in Uh, 1885, was it? I don't remember. Yeah, no, I don't remember either. But um, pretty much he went there, and he kind of fell in love with art there. He would search for boxes of books, prints, and drawings in the stalls along the Syene River, um, yeah, between his classes. So soon after this prompted him to stop studying law, and then he began his career as an art dealer um early on in his career though his apprenticeship was rejected by the dealer george petit and he was pretty much a french art dealer as well in paris who was a key cultivator and promoter of the impressionist artists between like the 1850s and 1920s um velard then worked briefly under alphonse Alfon- alphonse i'm pretty that right dumas I Yeah, Duma specialized in academic painting and rejected Villard's suggestion to share it with the Impressionists. Um, So then he went off on his own around like 1890 and he was struggling to earn a living. Mm -hmm. But he earned at least what he could by selling drawings and prints that he would collect from the Seine River. Mm -hmm. So eventually in September of 1993, Villard rented a small shop at 37 rue lafayette in the heart of the paris's art world really yeah
0: jeremy what do you know about paul Cezanne? he was also an important figure
2: well paul Cezanne was a french artist he was born in axis france on january 19 1839. Mm -hmm. his father had had a well-paying job so he was able to attend schools that was that helped advance his skills he also enrolled in the solage of I don't know how to pronounce this, but I think it's bourbon. When he met another brilliant person named M, named Emile Zola, right? Zola was a very was like a Zola was like a literary artist, while Santini mm-hmm. was pursuing painting, and and with Paul Paul Santini's dedication, dedication to to go to Paris, his father also allowed him. Allowed him to follow his dreams, and in 1861, Suzanne joined Zola with the hopes of pursuing art, studying at the academics of I don't know how to pronounce this, but I think it's pronounced B Be- Arts. Sadly, he wasn't able to make it in because his application was rejected, and as mm-hmm. an alternative, he would he would um, he would attend the academics uh, called um, I don't know how to pronounce this one, but I think it's pronounced Suisse uh, of for art studies. Mm-hmm. Susanne often visited the Louvre while studying in Paris, which caused him to become overwhelmed with feelings of self-doubt and even his own. And he would even doubt his own artistic skills. He had an interest in the works of Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Rembrandt, and also Jonas Vermeer. He eventually moved back to his hometown down after his five months stay in Paris quotes. His quotes were, art is a harmony parallel with nature. He also said that painting from nature is not copying the object, it is realizing one sensation, one s- sensations.
0: All right, perfect. So yeah, um, these are two very important, important prominent people in, I guess, art at the time. Um, We know that Ambrose Villard was a French art dealer and collector, and we know that he himself helped Paul Cezanne when, you know, was a French post-impressionist painter. And so we're going to talk about Diana bathing, one of Cezanne's nude paintings. And what we need to know about this is that this painting, I guess, includes these two very important uh, mythology characters from classical mythology. So Diana, and I don't know how to pronounce this either, but I think it's uh, as I-, I don't really know As So yeah, these two important uh, mythology characters. So Diana was known as Artemis in Greek mythology. We all know who Artemis is. She was the goddess of the hunt, the moon, and chastity. And Aceton was a hunter who accidentally stumbled upon Diana while she was bathing. So as punishment for witnessing her naked, Diana turned Aceton into a stag, And he was subsequently torn apart by his own hounds. Which, by the way, I think that, you know, as a classical mythology story, I think, wow, that's... Pretty exaggerative for uh, punishment, but you know, to each
1: their own. So, um, well, yeah, Haley,
0: what else do you know about you know, Diana Stone
1: Aston? I mean, yeah, know I was gonna say because as I was doing research on the painting as well, I realized that maybe honestly, um, Diana as the goddess, I don't think she intentionally meant to turn him into a stag. What makes um, you say that? Because, in a sense, she's bathing, right? Like, you, you get surprised. Eyes, and then she's flinging water at him obviously probably trying to get up and get away right <laughs> I think it was more in a sense where um, his intention was to actually stumble upon and it wasn't an accident so in a way I kind of feel like he was lurking he was oh, lurking. Yeah, he and he comes up <laughs> and decides to go up <laughs> and the whole reason he gets turned into a stag is because of his intentions because obviously mythology wise I mean, turning into a stag is pretty magical. Everything has, like, some sort of deep underlying thing. Exactly. Right, you're right. And so I think whatever presence, whatever higher power is a part of that mythology, turned him into the stag with the water, like, on their own accord themselves. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, interesting. I didn't get that take. Because when I first heard the story, I was kind of like, well they were, she was just kind of bathing and, you know, he was just finding his own business. Um, But, you know, the, you know, I, the more I think about it, the more I see where you're coming from, because I feel like a lot of Greek mythology stories ha- tend to do that, where they have some sort of like deeper, very, like, very sad backstory. So I can definitely see where you're coming from. So apart from yeah. Diana bathing, um, uh, Paul Cezanne made a painting about the temptation of Saint Anthony. So, um, do you guys know anything about the temptation of Saint Anthony, Jeremy?
2: Okay, so Saint Anthony, also known as Anton Abbot, was an in, was an Egyptian Christian. He was also a Catholic monk, and he was famous for enduring temptations provoked by Satan. When he reached the age of 20, he would sell all his property. Mm. He donated all of his money to the poor, and also he moved to the community where he would sleep in a cave and lead sort of like a hermit's kind of life. The story was a common subject for like a lot of artists in history and of course, art and literature in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Temptation of St. Anthony has like always been a very popular thing for many artists. So Suzanne completed three paintings on the same theme, which I think was super cool because like this version is Suzanne's like last known working of a subject that had often been represented since the time of like other artists and also like described by many 19th century writers. So during oh. a period when most of Suzanne's works dealt with like erotic subjects, and I think murders and like this temptation thing, like this conventional scene appears to be like a representation of the mastering of like the sexual conflicts, I think. Yeah beset or yeah, that like besieged the painter at this time. So like the temptress who is placed in the center of the picture like unveils herself with like a very big triumphant gesture. But like she's standing some distance from the hermit, unlike other another version of the scene in which she assails him relentlessly. So the devil who appears like on the left of the of the of the painting, I don't know if you're if you can see it or if you remember what it looks like, but it seems like yeah, I do. To, to be playing a dual role. So he is inciting the Temptress as well as like paradoxically appearing to be the protector to whom the saint clings like i don't know it just gives the work the lightness of spirit of this kind of like of a 19th or yeah 19th century scene
1: yeah i definitely agree
0: okay great so um other than the uh, temptation of saint anthony what do we know more
1: about the story of saint anthony Um, uh, story that's already known um after the death of his parents um saint anthony he was also known as anthon abbot so anthon inherited his parents wealth but he also felt a strong desire to um dedicate his life to god and kind of renounce materialistic things mm-hmm. so he was inspired by the gospel of matthew's words and he sold his all his property he gave all his wealth and all his possessions to the poor mm-hmm. and he also distributed a portion of his wealth to his sister Um. after that he retreated to the desert and he lived kind of in seclusion he slept in a cave and lived A hermit's life, in a way. Yeah. Um. He devoted himself to prayer, meditation, and kind of rigorous practices. But during his time in the desert, he also faced like really intense spiritual battles and temptations, which became the subject of obviously temptation of Saint Anthony. Um, Right. So, like according to these accounts, he encountered demons in various forms, who tried to distract him and tempt him away from his spiritual path, which only got worse as time went on and he became more and more um, dedicated to God. Right. So, of course, he remained steadfast and he relied on his faith and his strength to God. And he overcame these challenges, which prompted um, many individuals to look for him for spiritual guidance and healing. So he actually became known for his wisdom and spiritual insight to God and his ability to perform miracles, which they don't really elaborate on the miracle part so when I was in my research I don't really have evidence of that but we're just going to take their word for it
0: right so yeah
1: and as as his reputation grew he actually attracted a community of disciples who wanted to learn from his practices and teachings because they were so inspired by his ability to overcome these demons because back then Assuming it's it was obviously a newer thing and there wasn't really like a sort of set moral standard to what people should be like. So it obviously was probably very confusing and it was very different to have these temptations back then and not really know what they meant. Mm -hmm. So he was a prominent figure to a lot of men and women. At the time, who wanted to become more spiritually in touch with themselves and more in depth in touch with God to get rid of these temptations.
0: Right. And that's what's so interesting about the story because like like you were saying, like at around the age of 20, Anthony was like so moved by this gospel message and yeah. just to go sell what you have and give to the poor so that he actually did just that with like his large inheritance. Exactly. So he is different from Francis in that most of Anthony's like life was spent in solitude and he saw yeah. like the world completely different, completely like covered with snares and he gave the church and the world the witness of like solitary, like I don't want to call it confined, like sol- like very, very solitary, and like yeah. great personal prayer. So yeah, but like, but no saint is like anti-social. Was my thought process, and Anthony drew many people to himself for spiritual healing and guidance. So I remember like reading that he at fifty-four. He had responded to many requests and founded a sort of uh, monastery of scattered cells, like you were saying. So yeah. Francis, he had a great fear of, like, stately buildings and well-laden tables. So I was I was very intrigued that he decided to do that. And at 60, he hoped to be a martyr in the renewed Roman persecution, and he fearlessly exposed himself to, like, danger while giving moral and material support to those in prison. And oh, wow. Well. Yeah, I thought that was so I, I don't know, memorable. And so he yeah. was fighting yeah. um this I don't remember the name of it, this Aryan heresy and that massive trauma from which it took the church centuries to recover. So I don't know. Anthony was just associated in art with like always like a T shaped cross and a pig in a book. And and the pig and the cross are symbols of the like valiant warfare with the devil and the the cross is like his constant means of power over evil spirits and like the pig symbol of the devil himself so the book recalls his preference for the book of nature over like the printed word and so what i found interesting about this uh the image of anthony uh, of st anth the temptation of st anthony actually i'm going to look at it real quickly like you can see the oh, right you could see the uh, main female like in the in the photo and then you can kind of see the devil and you can see like a cross behind her and that kind of reminded yeah. me of like how it represents um the story of a
1: saint anthony so
0: yeah that was quite intriguing to me yeah it
1: is and i i didn't notice that cross before you said something but now that I'm looking at it yeah I find that really cool and I also find it kind of ironic that in the painting he's almost depicted as clinging to the devil yeah because he's such a prominent figure like a faith and like strong faith and being able to fight off like his demons essentially so I don't know I kind of find it ironic that he looks like as though he's like running to the devil like giving him his temptations and being like like, I can't handle this. Like, please just guide me with whatever you want me to do.
0: Exactly.
1: I'm, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay, great. So now let's dive into um, the 19th century French art business and, like, the French art world. So um, what do you guys know about that, Jeremy?
2: So so basically... Um... French art art business in like nineteen in the nineteenth century was a uh, quite a pivotal period for the art for like art as a whole, business in a whole you know mm-hmm, yeah. it like it was it witnessed like some changes in the art market like some for example um patron systems and the emergency of various movements yeah here's also an, there's also like a, sort of like an overview in nineteenth century mm-hmm. for example there's academics and salons the Art establishment in france during the 19th century was pretty dominated by like official institutions such as uh, i don't remember i don't know exactly how to pronounce this but i think it's called academy des Beaux arts i think i think yeah, academy Beaux arts yeah,
0: okay heard
2: of it. yeah something like that and the annual salon exhibitions like that and these institutions would like would have played like a crucial role in determining what art was considered ac- acceptable or i guess prestigious in a way mm-hmm. artists would like artists during this time would like uh, would like seek out recognition and validation by having their works accepted by the salon basically mm-hmm.
0: all right hmm. great
1: Yeah, no, and and now to get into more of the 19th century French art world in general, Mm -hmm. um, it obviously, it was a vibrant and transformative period marked by Mm -hmm. artistic movements, influential artists, and just like changing societal dynamics in general. Um, To begin, one of like the most prominent um, art movements was Romanticism in the early 19th century and um it was pretty right. much just wait romanticism was like a movement emphasizing like
0: individual emotions right like imagination yeah,
2: yeah. yeah romanticism and, was wow. uh also kind of like a movement where they would actually t- uh it's actually pretty interesting so basically what they would do is that like they kind of like speak the truth through like imagination which is actually a pretty cool concept in my opinion
1: yeah and and i noticed that it would kind of like like, just in a way, like, in modern times, like, our generation kind of uses the word to pretty much, like, I don't know, create this sort of um just happy vibe. Like, just, like, romanticizing yeah. <laughs> in a way where it's just, like, it, it just creates, like, you see things through, like, rose-colored glasses, essentially. Exactly. I think that's what it was, like, really focused on. And it also included a lot of nature. And I think it was very, like... I noticed everything to be very elegant. That's the vibe it kind of gives me.
0: Yeah, I like your, like, the way you said that, like, you see everything through rose-colored glasses, essentially that everything was very, like, nature-inspired, yeah. individual emotions. Like, that was... I think that, like, describes it pretty well. Yeah.
2: I yeah, yeah. I think it's, like, a, you know, a pretty cool sort of, like, art form. You know, it's it's very creative and not... It's, like, a lot different from, like, realism, in my opinion.
1: No, mm. Oh, and actually, realism came kind of after in the mid 19th century um, it emerged as a reaction against the idolized and often mythological subjects of academic art which is kind of ironic considering like you know the temptation of Saint Anthony and all of those paintings by Suzanne. Um, um, realist artists including Gustave Courbet, and I don't know if I'm saying his name right but Honoré Damier they <laughs> tried to depict everyday life, social issues, and like the realities of just working classes in general. Um, so there are aimed to capture the truth and convey a sense of social critique, which I think they did perfectly. Um and to move on to Impressionism, which was also a very prominent movement during that time. Yeah. Specifically Definitely they emerged. Like... Oh no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Specifically it emerged in the eighteen sixties and this one, like, it, it really revolutionized the art world. Like, artists such as, like, Claude Monet, Edgar Degas, and, like, Pierre Agoste, Renoir broke away from the traditional techniques. It mm-hmm. was on capturing, like, the fleeting effects of light, color, atmosphere. And um. I think it was just more of, like, a freeing era in the art period at this point. I feel like it was, in a sense... The period of time where artists wanted to become more free, and they wanted to, um, show the world that art didn't necessarily have to be based on rules to be called art. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, because a lot
0: of the time, artists like felt pressured that the art that they were pushing out wasn't what the audience wanted. But exactly. this is a time when they kind
1: of just put whatever they were feeling into it, which is great. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And um, that's why their works often feature like really loose brushwork and emphasis on like direct observation and the portrayal of seeming like normal everyday scenes and kind of turning that into like a more freeing, flowy kind of piece to look at for the mm-hmm. audience in a sense. Um, which then the last movement I'll be talking about brings me to post-impressionism. And the post-impressionism move and post-impressionist movement sorry developed in the late 19th century and um that kind of built upon and expanded the ideas of the impressionists that came before them so specifically Suzanne as we just spoke about him and Vincent van Gogh Mm -hmm. um, they experimented with form color and perspective and moved towards even more subjective and expressive approaches so Mm -hmm. Essentially post impressionism laid the groundwork for later artistic movements like Cubism and Fauvism, which I don't really know much about, but um kind of more abstract com- concepts. And I think Yeah, that, I definitely agree. Yeah, it definitely opened up the world way more mm-hmm. for abstract <laughs> artworks.
0: Right. And so, like, yeah, the nineteenth century witnessed like a lot of several significant art styles. That were pretty notable. I mean, yeah, you talked about Uh-oh. the really big, the main important ones, romanticism, impressionism, post-impressionism. There's, like, hints of realism in there. I think there's also um, symbolism, a lot of academic art, and yeah. a lot of, like, orient- orientalism, orientalism, too, just because... Yeah, yeah. I feel like artists like Jean Auguste Dominique and Eugene Delacroix, they were, like, very drawn to these, like, exotic, like, Middle East and North Africa. And, like, I guess portraying, like, a lot of, like, the scenes and themes inspired by these regions. Kind of, like, I I don't want to say, like, a landscape, but kind of, kind of, like, a landscape, yeah. No, yeah, I would
1: agree. All
0: right, great. So... I think we've covered all the really big uh, important styles and movements and I wanted to get into Ambrose Villard one more time. We covered him a little bit at the beginning and, but we haven't really talked about his big story with Paul Cezanne. And what I wanted to, I guess, really express to you guys was how Ambrose Villard kind of did a little mistake. He did a little oopsie. So in his memoirs, uh, Ambroise Vallard highlights like the intriguing nature of interpreting art and the role that titles can play in shaping perception and understanding. And so in this particular case, the press's interpretation of Suzanne's paintings changed drastically based on the assigned title, leading to very different descriptions and analysis from people who view the painting. So initially, when the painting was mistakenly associated with the title Diana Bathing, the press praised the work for its depiction of the goddess and her virgins. And so the focus was on the noble qualities of the figures and the overall composition. Although when the painting was later identified as Temptation of St. Anthony, the press like shifted their perspectives entirely, and they began interpreting the artwork in the context of the new title, emphasizing the presence of a sly and belittling daughter of Satan, So I thought that this, yeah, exactly. I thought that the situation raises questions about the nature of interpretation in art. Like, did the press make a mistake by ascribing different meanings to the same paintings based on its title? Or did, like, Villard contribute to the confusion by misplacing the painting and their corresponding titles?
1: What do you guys think? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with the fact that... um context really does matter in interpreting art i think in a sense when you look at everything as a whole like description the title and the piece and i do think that Villard was at fault for the title mix-up because Mm -hmm, definitely essentially when i read a title of something and then i go back to look at it if i had already looked at it before i do tend to notice things that kind of correlate with the title might
0: not have not noticed unless the title had been there right
1: exactly exactly so I think that the title just prompts you to kind of think deeper and look at the art deeper and just notice things that you normally wouldn't have. So the title definitely does have an impact on the view and the audience for sure. I yes, I definitely agree. Jeremy, do you feel, have any insights?
2: Uh I feel like sometimes um it can be sometimes hard for some people to come up with a title, but I also feel like it's we're like fallible to make errors sometimes. That's about my take, I
0: guess. Yeah, I mean, I can I can see that take, but you know, Ambrosio was like a very well known man and who, you know, did this kind of thing with a lot of like very high end artists. So it it like the mistake, uh, could have been avoided, but that's not really what we're trying to talk about. So the incident um... also invites like a broader discussion about like the roles of titles in interpreting art, which we kind of discussed. So like titles can act as like a guide, providing viewers with contextual information or directing their attention to a specific elements within the artwork, like Bailey was saying. They can shape initial perceptions and influence the viewers understanding and like even emotional response. However, I feel like titles can also be limiting or misleading like they may impose a specific narrative or concept onto the artwork, potentially overshadowing other possible interpretations. So in the case of Cezanne's painting, the artist himself expressed indifference to the titles and claimed that he had no particular subject in mind. So I feel like this shows that he intended his work to be open to multiple interpretations and focus more on capturing certain movements rather than conveying a specific narrative.
1: Yeah. And well, in that case, I would say Ballard and the press are at fault because at the end of the day, the artist creating the artwork, not everyone will agree with what they expect you to see. But the mm-hmm. fact that he left his artwork open to such interpretation kind of places them both in the wrong for trying to put such like a set um, kind of like purpose. Meaning? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Meaning purpose for the artwork. Mm hmm. So I definitely think that that prompted a good discussion because I definitely wouldn't have thought about it like that before.
0: Great, okay. So ultimately I feel like the incident involving Villard, the press and the like misattributed titles underscores the, I guess, I wanna say subjective nature of interpreting art. I feel like it highlights how the context and framing of an artwork, including its title can significantly influence how it is being perceived and understood. And it also emphasizes the importance of engaging with art on a personal level, allowing room for individual interpretation and the exploration of multiple perspectives. All right, I think, I think this was a great conversation, you guys. What about you? Did you learn
1: anything new?
2: I thought this was a pretty interesting topic to talk about. Um, I think I can say I learned quite a lot. I'd say.
1: Yeah, okay. me as well. I agree. I definitely. Um, thought about things deeper than I would have prior to the conversation so I definitely did learn something from this
0: perfect all right that makes me so happy to hear you guys so I want to say thank you for joining us so much today um, Jeremy and Bailey I appreciate it this concludes exploring our podcast so subscribe to exploring our podcast on iTunes Spotify SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts And thank you for listening. Please join us as soon and remember to stay curious.